Chapter Eight of A Mysterious Disappearance by Louis Tracy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Carolyn. The Hotel du Cercle. Bruce did not go to Bournemouth. He quitted London by the next mail, and after a wearisome journey of thirty-six hours, found himself in the garden courtyard of the Hotel du Cercle at Monte Carlo. Refreshed by a bath and an excellent déjeuner, he decided to go quietly to work and search the visitor's book for himself without asking any questions. The Hotel du Cercle was a popular resort, and it took him some time, largely devoted to the elucidation of hieroglyphic signatures, before he was quite satisfied that no one even remotely suggestive of the name of Sidney H. Corbett had recorded his presence in the hotel since the first week in November. The barrister, for the first time, began to doubt Mrs. Hilmer. Twice had her statements not been verified by facts. It was with an expression of keen annoyance at his own folly, entrusting so much to a favourable impression, that he turned to the hotel clerk to ask if the name of Mr. Sidney H. Corbett was familiar to him. The courteous Frenchman screwed up his forehead into a reflective frown before he answered, "'But yes, monsieur. Me, I have not seen the gentleman. But he exists. There have been letters. Two, three letters.' "'Ah, letters. Has he received them?' The attendant examined a green base-covered board, decorated with diamonds of tape, in which was stuck an assortment of letters, mostly addressed to american tourists they were here they have gone then he has taken them yes cried bruce but surely you know something about him nothing this hall is open to all the world do you tell me that any one can come here and take any letters which may be stuck in that rack will the gentleman be pleased to consider many persons give their address here days and weeks before they come to arrive some persons in the manner of Monte Carlo do not wish their names to be known of everybody. We cannot distinguish, we do not allow the address of the hotel to be used improperly, if we know it, but there are no complaints. The barrister did not argue the matter further. He only said, Perhaps you can tell me thus far, as I am very anxious to meet Mr. Corbett. About how long is it since the last letter came for him? but certainly it came yesterday it was readdressed from some place in london if possible with the next one i'll keep watch for mr corbett so mrs hilmer had not misled him the so-called corbett was in monte carlo but had possibly disguised himself under another name again did bruce consult the hotel register this time with the aid of the vendors list in the springbook mine but without result there was nothing for it but to familiarize himself with Monte Carlo and its habitués, awaiting developments in the chase of Corbett. In January, when London alternates between fog and sleet, it is not an intolerable thing to remain in forced idleness amid the sunshine and flowers of the Riviera. There are two ways of doing Monte Carlo. You may live riotously, lose your substance at the casino, and go home on a free ticket supplied by the proprietors of the gambling saloons. Or you may enjoy to the utmost the keen air, 
magnificent scenery, fine promenades, and excellent music, the latter two provided by the same benevolent agency. It is needless to say which of these alternatives appealed to Claude Bruce. Being a rich man, it was of no consequence to him to lose a few louis in backing the red for a five-minute bit of excitement. Being a sensible one, he then quitted the casino and went for a stroll in the gardens. Fashion, backed by the doctors, has decreed that no longer shall the northern littoral of the Mediterranean be the only haven of rest for those afflicted with pulmonary complaints. Weak-chested and consumptive people are now banished to the windless and icy altitudes of Switzerland, so of recent years a walk through Nice, Menton, or Monte Carlo itself is not such a depressing experience as it was when every second person encountered was a hopeless invalid. A pigeon shooting match was in progress, and as Bruce fell in with a friend who took a prominent part in local life, the two entered the club grounds to watch the contest. At the moment a handsome, well-set-up young Englishman was shooting off a tie with a Russian count. A very pretty girl, with a delicate and refined beauty enhanced by a pleasant expression, was taking a most unfeminine interest in the slaughter of the pigeons by the Englishman. Her eyes spoke her thoughts. It was as if they said, I do not want the birds to be killed, but I want a certain person to win. Nine birds each had been grasped, and the Russian was growing impatient. The Englishman was cool, his fair backer keenly excited. The Count fired and missed his tenth. Up rose the Englishman's bird, and the girl could not restrain an impetuous, Now! So the Englishman missed also. Amidst the buzz of comment which arose, Bruce said to his companion, What's going on? This is the final tie in the international. It is a big prize, and each man has backed himself heavily. The two are Albert Mansmore and Count Bischkoff. The girl has taken all the nerve out of Mansmore. Bar accident, he is a goner. The cynic was right. In the thirteenth round the Count alone scored, and smiled largely in the response to his antagonist's quiet congratulations. As for the girl, it was with difficulty she restrained her tears. "'I think that we have witnessed a tragedy,' said Bruce's acquaintance as they walked off, and the barrister agreed with him. He was sorry for Mensmore and his pretty supporter. Mayhap the loss of the match meant a great deal to both of them. That night he learned by chance that Mensmore lived at the Hotel du Circle. He met him in the billiard-room, and tried to inveil him into conversation, but the young fellow was too miserable to respond to his advances. Beyond a mere civil acknowledgment of some slight act of politeness, Bruce could not draw him out. Next morning he saw Mensmore again. If the man looked haggard the previous evening, his appearance now was positively startling, that is, to one of Bruce's powers of observation. Ninety-nine men out of a hundred would have seen that Mensmore had not slept well. Bruce was assured that, for some reason, the other's brain was dominated by some overwhelming idea, and one which might eventuate in a tragic manner were to be allowed to go unchecked. 
For some reason he took a good deal of interest in this unfortunate fellow-countryman, and determined to help him if the opportunity presented itself. It came, with dramatic rapidity. During dinner he noticed that Mensmore was in such a state of mental disturbance that he ate and drank with the air of one who is feverishly wasting rather than replenishing his strength. Soon after eight o'clock, at the hour when frequenters of the casino go there in order to secure a seat for the evening's play, Mensmore quitted the dining-room. Bruce followed him unobtrusively, and was just in time to see him enter the lift. The barrister waited in the hall, having first secured his hat and overcoat from the bureau, where he happened to have left them. Even while he noted the descending lift, in which he could see Mensmore, who had donned a light-covered coat, the breast of which bulged somewhat on the left side, the hotel clerk came to him, triumphantly holding a letter. "'And now, monsieur,' cried the clerk, "'we shall see what we shall see.' The missive was addressed to the mysterious Sidney H. Corbett, and had been forwarded by the Sloane Square post office. With a clang, the door of the lift swung open, and Mensmore hastened out. Bruce had to decide instantly between the chance of seeing Corbett with his own eyes and pursuing the fanciful errand he had mapped out in imagination with reference to the stranger who so interested him. "'Thank you,' he said to the clerk. "'I'm going to the casino for an hour. You will greatly oblige me by keeping a sharp lookout for anyone who claims the letter.' "'Monsieur, it shall have my utmost regard.' The barrister had not erred in his surmise as to Mensmore's destination. The young man walked straight across the square and entered the grounds of the famous casino. Indoors, an excellent band was playing a selection from the Geisha. The spacious foyer was fast filling with a fashionable throng, without the silver radiance of the moon, lighting up gardens rocks buildings and sea might well have added the last link to the pleasant bondage that would keep any one from the gambling saloon that night but mensmore heeded none of these things he passed the barrier closely followed by bruce crossed the foyer and disappeared through the baize doors that guard the magnificent room in which roulette is played Round several of the tables, a fairly considerable crowd had gathered already. The more the merrier is the rule of the casino. There is something curiously fascinating for the gambler in the presence of others. It would seem to be an almost ridiculous thing for a man to stalk solemnly up to a deserted board and stake his money on the chances of the game merely for the edification of the officials in charge. Bruce entered the room soon after Mensmore, and saw the latter elbowing his way to a seat about to be vacated by a stout Spanish lady, who had rapidly lost the sum she allowed herself to stake each day. She was one of those numerous players who bring to the casino a certain amount daily, and systematically stop playing when they have either lost their money or won a previously determined maximum. This method, in fact, when combined with a careful system, is the only one whereby even a rich individual can indulge in a costly pastime, and at the same time, escape speedy ruin. With a fair share of luck, it may be made to pay. With continuous bad fortune, the losses spread over such a period 
that common sense has some opportunity to rescue the victim before it is too late. Claude took up a position from which he could note the actions of the stranger in whom he was so interested. At first, Mensmore staked nothing. He placed a small pile of gold in front of him. He seemed to listen expectantly to the croupier's monotonous cry, Vincept, rouge, imper, passe, or dix-huit, noir, père, monk, and so on, while the little ivory ball whirred across the disc, and the long rakes, with unerring skill, drew in or pushed forward the sums lost or won. The dominant expression of Mensmore's face as he sat and listened was one of disappointment. Something for which he waited did not happen. At last, with a tightening of his lips and a gathering sternness in his eyes, he placed five louis on the red, the number previously called being thirteen. Black one. For the next three attempts, each time with a five louis stake on the board, Mensmore backed the red, but still black one. Next to him, an Italian, betting in notes of a thousand francs each, had quadrupled his first bet by backing the black. Both men rose simultaneously, the Italian grinning delightedly at a smart Parisienne, who joyously nodded her congratulations, the Englishman quiet, utterly unmoved but slightly pallid. He passed out into the foyer and stopped to light a cigarette. Bruce noticed that his hand was steady, and that all the air of excitement had gone. These were ill signs. There's no man so calm as he who has deliberately resolved to take his own life. That Mensmore was ruined, that he was hopelessly in love with a woman whom he could not marry, and that he was about to commit suicide, Bruce was as certain as though the facts had been proved by a coroner. But this thing should not happen if he could prevent it. The band was now playing one of Waldteufel's waltzes. Mensmore listened to the fascinating melody for a moment. He hesitated at the door of the writing-room, but he went out, puffing furiously at his cigarette. A guard looked at him as he turned to the right of the entrance and made for the shaded terraces overlooking the sea. A silent Englishman, thought the man, and he caught sight of Bruce, also smoking, preoccupied and solitary. Another silent Englishman. Mon Dieu, what miserable lives these English lead! And so the two vanished into the blackness of the foliage, while within the brilliantly lighted building the frou-frou of silk mingled with soft laughter and the sweet strains of music. If it be true that extremes meet, then this was a night for a tragedy. End of chapter 8